To the Most High and Mighty Prince James, by the grace of God, King of Great Britain, France, and Ireland, Defender of the Faith, etc., the translators of the Bible wish grace, mercy, and peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Great and manifold were the blessings, most dread sovereign, which Almighty God, the Father of all mercies, bestowed upon us, the people of England, when first he sent your Majesty's royal person to rule and reign over us. For whereas it was the expectation of many, who wished not well unto our scion, that upon the setting of that bright occidental star, Queen Elizabeth of most happy memory, some thick and palpable clouds of darkness would so have overshadowed this land, that men should have been in doubt which way they were to walk, and that it should hardly be known who was to direct the unsettled state. The appearance of your majesty, as of the sun in his strength, instantly dispelled those supposed and surmised mists, and gave unto all that were well affected exceeding cause of comfort, especially when we beheld the government established in your highness, and your hopeful seed by an undoubted title, and this also accompanied with peace and tranquility at home and abroad. You're back listening to a History of the King James Bible podcast with your host G.K., It is April 2017, and this is episode 21, dedicated to a prince. In this episode, we're going to briefly discuss three important items relating to the King James Bible. One, the dedication. Two, the preface. And three, we will meet the royal printer. We'll talk about the printer and his work. Throughout this episode, you will hear some short portions of the dedication and the preface provided for your edification by my friend and all-round good bloke, Julian Charles, from The Mind Renewed. Please visit Julian at his website and tell him I sent you. TheMindRenewed.com TheMindRenewed.com Let's get this episode rolling. Let's talk about the dedication. The Baroque-style frontispiece of the King James Bible, was produced by the Flemish engraver Cornelius Boll, for which he was paid £10. The printed work shows the twelve apostles at the top, with Moses and Aaron on either side of the central text. In the four corners sit Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, with their symbolic animals. At the top, over the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, is the Tetragrammaton, the Y hey vav hey spelling Yahweh. The central text of the frontispiece reads, The Holy Bible, containing the Old Testament and the New, newly translated out of the original tongues, and with the former translations, diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special commandment, appointed to be read in the churches, imprinted at London by Robert Barker, printed to the King's Most Excellent Majesty, Anno Domini, 1611. So now that's a very interesting piece of uh, work to look at. There's plenty of images um, online where you can go and look at that, um, the front piece of the King James Bible. So go and have a look at that. And um, it's beautiful artwork there. But let's move on to the dedication. Now, as we found out in our last episode, Bishop Bilson and Miles Smith were handed the task of writing the dedication and the preface for the 1611 King James Version. If you read the dedication, you'll note that James comes in for a great deal of praise. No surprises, really, but 
Um, not only is it full of praise for him, it's also very political. Another thing I'd like you to note is that the title font size of the dedicatory epistle is larger than any other in the Bible. And this, for the most part, is ascribed to Bishop Bilson. And as I said um, in our last episode and just now, the preface and dedication were produced by Bilson and Miles Smith, one a high churchman, the other a closet Puritan. Now I say they're a closet Puritan because when we read what Smith wrote, he does tend to keep his Puritan thoughts on the down low. This portion of the work is both political and full of praise for James, so please listen closely to the readings and what I'm saying here and decide for yourself. I also highly recommend you read the dedication for yourself. One point I'm personally happy to see them acknowledge here is that James is well and truly behind this project. Indeed, he is the principal mover and author. Now, fellow believers listening to this will surely agree with me that God is involved here, and we know from reading God's word, God uses men to fulfill his plans. The dedication comes with a forecast as to how it might be received by some. The translators will be traduced, that means defamed or to be badly spoken of. So I'll start again. The translators will be traduced by popish persons, that is the Catholics, whose aim was to keep the people in ignorance and darkness. Not only is there a dig at the Catholics here, but there's also a few choice words for the Puritans. Here, let me read this for you and you can see for yourself. Now, I'm not going to read it all. I'll just jump in here at a portion that will kind of highlight what I'm talking about here. So that if, on the one side, we shall be traduced by popish persons at home or abroad, who therefore will malign us, because we are poor instruments to make God's holy truth, to be yet more and more known unto the people, whom they desire still to keep in ignorance and darkness. Or if, on the other side, we shall be maligned by self-conceited brethren, now I'm sure he's talking about the Puritans here, or if, on the other side, we shall be maligned by self-conceited brethren who run their own ways and give liking unto nothing, but what is framed by themselves and hammered on their anvil we may rest secure, supported within by the truth and innocency of a good conscience, having walked the ways of simplicity and integrity as before the Lord. And sustained without by the powerful protection of your majesty's grace and favour, which will ever give countenance to honest and Christian endeavours against bitter censures and uncharitable imputations. So they're fending off uh, arguments that they're sure to come from the Catholics and from uh, the Puritans and others of the same ilk. Now, just a quick overview of what the dedication is about, really. You're going to hear portions of it during this episode. I will be playing some portions of it. Have a listen, but really, go and have a read of it for yourself. But the de- dedication really is about a few things. It's about the high praise of James, right? It's a high praise of James who God blessed the kingdom with and who gave us this new English Bible. That's why we give James this praise. Now, this new Bible in English is intended to enlighten his people who have been kept in the dark until recent times. That's their argument. It will put the Puritans straight and perhaps bring a response from the Catholics, but a response the translators expect. So they're not going to be surprised if the response comes. I will point out here that the Catholics put out their own version of the Bible in in English during this era. 
the Douay Reims Bible. Now, I truly don't know how to pronounce it, so um, have a bit of a giggle, but I just can't get pronunciations in French. My French, you know, French is not my strong suit apart from we oui and bonne chance, mon ami. I mean, that's about all I've got. Um, so back to the Douay Reims or the Douay Reims or however it's pronounced. This version of the Bible is a translation from the Latin Vulgate and it was published over a number of years. The New Testament of this version was produced in 1582 uh, and the Old Testament and um, others parts were published in two separate volumes. Uh, Genesis to Job appeared in 1609 and the remainder of the Old Testament in 1610. Now, I'll let you do some research on that version for yourself, but I think it's fair to say, and this is just my opinion, but I think it's fair to say two things about it. I think one, one, by this era, scholars had realized that the Latin Vulgate had some, can I just say issues? That I'll just say issues and leave it at that. Um, and also the DR, see, I don't want to pronounce the word again, but the DR was published in response to the new English Bibles that were appearing due to the Reformation. So this is a response by the Catholic Church and the Catholics to the Reformation and their English Bibles that are coming out. And there were more than um, the one we're talking about here, the King James Version. Let's now move on to the preface. Now, though the church were thus furnished with Greek and Latin translations, even before the faith of Christ was generally embraced in the empire, for the learned know that even in St. Jerome's time the consul of Rome and his wife were both ethnics, and about the same time the greatest part of the senate also, yet for all that the godly learned were not content to have the scriptures in the language which themselves understood Greek and Latin, as the good lepers were not content to fare well themselves, but acquainted their neighbours with the store that God had sent, that they also might provide for themselves, but also for the behoof and edifying of the unlearned, which hungered and thirsted after righteousness, and had souls to be saved as well as they, they provided translations into the vulgar for their countrymen, insomuch that most nations under heaven did shortly after their conversion hear Christ speaking unto them in their mother tongue, not by the voice of their minister only, but also by the written word translated. The preface is mostly attributed to Miles Smith, so it's thought that Smith handled the preface while Bilson took care of the dedication. The first thing to note is that the preface is no longer printed, for the most part, in King James Version of the Bible. Now, I have one of those 400-year anniversary editions, and everything mentioned here appears in that. Um, and if you're keen on the King James Version, you should try and get hold of one of those. Um, I can't believe how cheap they became after they'd been on the market for a year or so. Um, uh, you know, that was my experience locally. Like, I think, I, I just can't remember, but I think they started out at like, they might have been like $99, and then they were on special for about 49 And then my son contacted me and said, Dad, those Bibles are, are super cheap now. And I think they were about went down to about $10 each year. And, you know, I didn't buy any more. I just bought the one, but I, I should have bought more. And they would have made a great gift because um, the packaging is lovely. Um, the book itself is lovely, you know, and, and you know, it's a, a nice thing to hold in your hands. Not that it's the real thing or anything like that. I do have a couple of antique pages from King James versions. Like between my son and I, I think we have about four pages that date 
previous to 1633 or around about that edition. And uh, Jonathan, one of our listeners, sent me a page as well. And I think that one was around the 633. I just can't remember. Um, but my son owns a page and I have um, two or three pages myself. And, um, you know, I've had ours, ours framed and can hang them up on the wall or whatever. They're a nice piece and they certainly weren't too expensive. Like they're not cheap, don't get me wrong, but they're not too expensive. It's the ones from the original version, the first edition, 1611. Um, now a page from that is going to cost you several hundred dollars. Anyway, that's just a point of interest for you. All right, um, let's go back to this. Now, a very good reason to have a read of the preface is to see how Jacobean writers wrote when they were not translating the Bible. The language used in the King James Bible is a fascinating study in and of itself, and I plan to get to that a little further down the track here. But for now, if you're of a mind, go online and read the whole of the preface, read all of the preface. Because when you compare it to the language actually used in the text of the King James Version, you're going to see that how they wrote back then or how they spoke that back then is not exactly how it appears in the King James Bible. Now, some people are going to be surprised at that. I know I was when I first heard it. We'll go into that in an upcoming episode some way a bit down the track there. But um, for now, go and read the preface for yourself if you're of a mind to. And um, consider it homework if you like. Think of it as, okay, GK has just given me some homework. And before you ask me, yes, it will be on the test. Okay, so what are some of the themes that are in the preface? Well, some of the themes are the language, as I've just mentioned there. Um, um, oh, not really a theme, but a highlight is to look at the language. Um, another thing is about the opposition. They know that there's going to be opposition. Indeed, there was. Um, the Puritans wanted the same word translated the same way each and every time rather than how the King James translators did it and how we should today when we're reading our Bibles or translating from other languages, we need to look at it in context because not every English word fits in every English sentence the same way each and every time. And that's the beauty of language, um, a beauty of the languages we use. There's lots of variety to draw out what the writer is wanting to, to say. Uh, and even when we speak, it's the same thing. So perhaps that's one thing that they did resist in the opposition from the Puritans, th that point there. No, we're not going to translate every single word the same way, even though, say, it's in the original Hebrew or Greek, it's context that should uh, dictate how we translate a sentence or a paragraph or whatever. Indeed, a whole chapter or a whole um, book of the Bible. Not that the original manuscripts had chapters and verses in them, at the time anyway, but um, it's just something to note. Also, um, the translators did acknowledge those that had come before them, like um, the acknowledgement of previous works uh, before them. Um, Tyndall supporters estimate 94% of the New Testament of the King James Version is exactly as per the Tyndall Bible, right? And who knows? You know, Tyndall worked alone and presumably he didn't have anyone else to bounce his ideas off. Maybe he did, but I haven't studied him thoroughly enough to say, but perhaps he did have others to bounce his ideas off. But for example, we know that these guys worked in committees and panels and they bounced words and ideas and thoughts off each other. And then those were examined by others. And then they came back again and again and again to revise and review. Um, hang on, just let me read a little bit here for you. Um, I'm going to 
go to Nicholson for this portion, and I'll just read some of it for you, get an idea of perhaps what I'm talking about here. Integration is both the purpose and method of the King James Bible, and one sign of that attempted integration is the degree to which the text the translators had produced was an amalgam of the sequence of translations that had come before it. Take as one example of something that could be replicated over the entire volume of the work, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 11. You would read it and think little of it, a typically complex reflection by the apostle written for the young congregation in Greece on the richly shared nature of church life, on its life as a web of mutual help and support. You are also helping together by prayer for us that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. These words are a tapestry of many different decisions taken over many decades, from Tyndall's first 1526 translation to its adaptation for Thomas Cromwell's official Great Bible in 1539, the 1557 New Testament produced in Calvinist Geneva, the 1560 Complete Geneva Bible, and finally the 1568 Bishop's Bible, on the basis of which the translators had done their work. You are also helping from the Bishop's Bible, together from the Geneva, by from the Bishop's, prayer for us from Tyndall, that from Tyndall, for the from the Geneva, Gift from the great, bestowed upon us from the Geneva, by the means of many from the Tyndall, persons from the great, thanks may be given, Tyndall, by from the Geneva, many on our behalf, Tyndall. So um, that might sound a bit unusual when it's read, um, read aloud, but um, that's how I'm reading it here in the book. So it might be worth rewinding here and having a listen again. There you go, I reround it for you so you can just play it forward now. All right, I'll just finish this bit of text here and we can move on. This one tiny example of the minutely detailed nature of what the translators had done demonstrates their astonishing achievement. So you can see here that Nicholson's highlighting the fact that they did build their foundations on pre previous examples. And, you know, overall, we do know that they acknowledge that. If you read the preface, they acknowledge all of the different versions that had gone before them, not just in English, but way back to um, ancient times and all sorts of languages, some of them no longer spoken. So, you know, they, they did know what they were doing and they did acknowledge the work that had gone before them and they do acknowledge that they built on that and made one fantastic translation. Let's move on. Now, just before we continue here, I'd like to bend your ear just a bit about a topic that continues to come up in communications from many of you about access to the series. Um, I know I've addressed this a number of times already, but with new listeners arriving all the time, it continues to be raised. Let me be as clear as I can. Every single episode is available for free from two different websites. You can either go to www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com where, if you go through the older post, you can start at episode one, but every single episode is posted there. Um, there's a link to the MP3 file on every single episode, or if you don't want to go to that website, you can go to www.likeflintradio.com and on the front page... 
click the King James Bible podcast icon. You can't miss it. It's on the front page of www.likeflintradio.com. Click that icon and there listed you'll find every single episode of the series. Now at both these websites, you can stream the MP3 files from both websites or if you're on a PC, for example, you can right click and save it and keep it. Perhaps you might like to keep it forever. Who knows? But your choices are there. Every episode's available from two websites. I've said this a number of times too. If you don't want to miss out on updates and new episodes, go to www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast, go to that website and sign up for email notifications. It's just that simple. Now, as far as iTunes go, and as far as I know with the account I have, it seems I can only have 10 episodes available at any one time, and there's nothing I can do about that. I don't ask for donations because I'm happy to do this for you for free. I don't have ads because I want you to enjoy this and not have to endure ads. Lots of other podcasts, lots of other podcast series, um, nearly all of them, nearly every single one I listen to, they're asking for donations or you have to listen to ads. I'm trying to avoid that as best I can, all right? So for those reasons, right, no one gets paid, I don't get paid, no one gets paid to do this. Everyone that helps me helps me for free. Everything I do is all for free. Um, and another thing to keep in mind, and let's be totally honest about this. I mean, we all hope everyone's honest all the time when they say that, but there, this is a lot of work and I'm not a well person. And I just don't have the time to get across all of the technologies I'm using. All I'm capable of is making a podcast, putting it up on the website, getting it out there, maybe doing a bit of a graphic for it or whatever, um, doing the research, obviously, put just put that aside. But let's talk about technology. Um, that's about all I'm capable of. And I just don't have the time or the health to learn anything beyond that at this point in my life. So if you're happy to have this for free as you're listening to it right now, please, all I ask you to do, I'm giving it to you for free. I want you to share it with someone else for free. That's all I ask you to do. Okay, let's leave that topic. Let's put that aside for now. Um, I, I will let you know I'll be running a book on how long it will be before I'm talking about it again. Just kidding. Hey, I want to thank everyone who has written to me since episode 20. Thank you for taking the time. I do try and respond to everyone. So far, I have been able to respond to everybody in a very short time. So that's worked out good. Um, and it's always nice to hear your words of encouragement. So thank you very much, uh, each and every one of you that, that have written to me. Also, please do remember to visit Julian's podcast website, themindrenewed.com themindrenewed.com. Please go over there, say hello to Julian, and tell him GK sent you. All right, enough of that. I just want to get on with the episode. That's why we're all here. Let's get back to episode 21. There were also within a few hundred years after Christ translations many into the Latin tongue, for this tongue also was very fit to convey the law and the gospel by, because in those times very many countries of the West, yea, of the South, East, and North, spake or understood Latin, being made provinces to the Romanes. But now the Latin translations were too many to be all good, for they were infinite. Latini interpretes nullo modo numerare possunt, saith St. Augustine. Again, they were not out of the Hebrew fountain, 
We speak of the Latin translations of the Old Testament, but out of the Greek stream. Therefore, the Greek being not altogether clear, the Latin derived from it must needs be muddy. This moved Saint Hierome, a most learned father and the best linguist without controversy of his age or of any that went before him, to undertake the translating of the Old Testament out of the very fountains themselves, which he performed with that evidence of great learning, judgment, industry, and faithfulness that he hath for ever bound the church unto him in a debt of special remembrance and thankfulness. I thought we were heading off in another direction there, but I just reread the next portion of Nicholson's book, and I think it pushes home what I'm trying to say here. So let's return to Nicholson. Now here we continue to discuss Tyndall, and um, you'll understand where we're going once you pick it up here, but just keep in mind we're discussing Tyndall um, initially here. What they did could not have been done without Tyndall, but the task reached beyond his. And the heart of this richness and resonance is in the musicality of the Jacobean translator's work. Tyndall was working alone, in extraordinary isolation. His only audience was himself. And surely as a result, there is a slightly bumpy, stripped straightforwardness about his manner and his rhythm. This is my commandment that ye love together as I have loved you. Greater love than this hath no man than that a man bestow his life for his friends. The Jacobean translation process was richly and densely social. Endless conversation and consultation flowed across the final judging committee, testing the translation not by sight, but by ear. This Bible was appointed to be read in churches, and thus had no illustrations for study at home, and so its meaning had to be carried on a heard rhythm, it had to appeal to what T.S. Eliot later called the auditory imagination, that feeling for syllable and rhythm penetrating far below the conscious levels of thought and feeling, invigorating every word. Under these pressures, Tyndall's words become, very slightly but very significantly, musically enriched. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The meanings of the true translations are not essentially different, but the Jacobean words are clarified where Tyndall's are clotted. They are memorable where Tyndall stumbles over his grammar. The Jacobean choice of word is more authoritative. One another, better than together. Lay down, better than bestow. And the Jacobean sentences sound like the voice of a divine wisdom and certainty, establishing a marvellous law where Tyndall conveys perhaps another Jesus, human, uncertain, seeking to articulate his revolutionary gospel. Far from burying Tyndall, the 1611 translators honoured him. They were quite explicit about their debt to the past. The king's own instructions had referred them to the sequence of 16th century versions and Miles Smith's preface is concerned to reiterate the point. The earlier translators deserve to be had of us and of posterity in everlasting remembrance. All they wanted was to improve the work that had gone before, so that whosoever is sound already, the same will shine as gold more brightly, being rubbed and polished. Also, if anything to be halting or superfluous or not so agreeable to the original, the same may be corrected and the truth set in place. And what can the king command to be done that will bring him more true honour than this? The idea, in fact, 
was not to make a new translation, Smith maintained, but to make, out of many good ones, one principal good one. And that was their triumph, a polished collation, a refinement of a century's translating, a book that became both clear and rich. Okay, so I hope that was interesting enough for you, and you get the gist of the point I'm making here, that the translators of the King James Bible built on the work of others before them, and they acknowledge that. And that acknowledgement is in the preface, which I think shows the caliber of the men we've been discussing for, oh boy, I don't know, how many episodes now? Okay, one more thing before we move on to the printers. Um, you can see all the works that I've used in the making of this series at the references page at the dedicated website www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com Take a look and if you're interested you can track down some of the books. I don't accept everything that I read in them but for the most part the books I've used in the makeup of this series are some of the best out there and if you want some idea about the King James Bible and how it was produced well um, some of these are the ones to get. Okay let's go now and meet the King's Printer. Now, the Church of Rome would seem at the length to bear a motherly affection towards her children, and to allow them the scriptures in their mother tongue. But, indeed, it is a gift not deserving to be called a gift, an unprofitable gift. They must first get a license in writing before they may use them, and to get that they must approve themselves to their confessor, that is, to be such as are, if not frozen in the dregs, yet soured with the leaven of their superstition. Howbeit, it seemed too much to Clement the Eighth that there should be any license granted to have them in the vulgar tongue, and therefore he overruleth and frustrateth the grant of Pius the Fourth. So much are they afraid of the light of the scripture, Lucifugae scriptuarum, as Tertullian speaketh, that they will not trust the people with it. No, not as it is set forth by their own sworn men. No, not with the license of their own bishops and inquisitors. Yea, so unwilling they are to communicate the scriptures to the people's understanding in any sort, that they are not ashamed to confess that we forced them to translate it into English against their wills. This seemeth to argue a bad cause, or a bad conscience, or both. Sure we are that it is not he that hath good gold, that is afraid to bring it to the touchstone, but he that hath the counterfeit. Neither is it the true man that shunneth the light, but the malefactor, lest his deeds should be reproved. The printer of the King James Bible was Robert Barker, of the Royal Printing House in Aldergate Street. His father before him had also been the Royal Printer. The Barkers had sole monopoly over the printing of Bibles, and before this version, they had printed the Geneva and the Bishop's versions. Now, Robert Barker was a wealthy fellow in his day. He owned a number of estates, and it said his income was around £3,000 a year, a very nice earn back in the day. When sending out the early proof versions of the Bible, he was reported to have said, I do yet groan under the burden of this book. To make his work lighter, he took on three partners, his cousins, John and Bonham Norton, who were stationers at the time, and one John Bill. But things were not all plain sailing with his new partners. Cousin John died in 1612, and soon after, Barker had dramas with Bonham Norton. 
It led to years of quarrelling and litigation, with Barker losing the patent, then regaining it, then losing it again, and the battle raged on for decades. Eventually he won out when Norton was sent to prison for bribery, but the victory was not everything he hoped for, since Barker was ultimately imprisoned for ten years for bad debts, where he died in 1643. Technically, he was still the king's printer. Isn't that something? Now, I will go into more about the text that was printed and different versions and such in upcoming episodes. Some of it is truly fascinating. Some of the errors are fun to read as well. For example, and I want you to put your conspiracy hat on here, did a disgruntled employee change the text of Psalm 119 verse 161? It should read, Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. But how did the verse read in this very first version of the King James Bible? Well, it went like this. Printers have persecuted me without a cause, which is quite hilarious when you think about it. Perhaps someone did have something against the boss and decided to throw that in there. Who knows? Anyway, I will cover more issues like that later in the series and... This episode will really set us up for those sorts of things in the future. Let's go to print. The Editio Princeps, or first edition, was a folio version measuring 16 by 10.5 inches, and it was printed on good quality linen and rag paper. Rag paper being made from cotton rags, so it, you know, it lasted a long time. That's what the idea was. Um, keep your eye out for a first edition at a garage sale or a boot sale because these are worth a fortune and not a small one. In 2015, Reverend Bray of St. Giles Church in Wrexham found one while doing a stock take and cleaning out the cupboards in the church. It's thought that there are less than 200 copies in existence. According to the online article, the St. Giles copy is not completely intact with the frontispiece missing from the Old Testament and some pages missing from the back. But it is otherwise in good condition, and the text is still legible due to the use of woven paper, which has a low acid content. Um, I'll put a link to that in the references section of the website. It says that individual pages from a first edition sell for around 500 quid, uh, 500 pounds. In current terms, that's about 620 US dollars, or about 820 Aussie dollars, or 8,500 South African Rand. The Bible was printed in black letter type, which was a copy of the German Gothic type. Inserted words, so these are the ones that you see in italics in modern Bibles, but inserted words, chapter summaries, headings, and marginal references to parallel passages were set in Roman type, which is, well, let's be honest, more readable. And when the King James Version was being printed, this Roman type font was the most common font type outside of Germany. The black letter type looks cool. You know, I like the look of it. It's great. It's good for headings and things like that, but it's not as readable as the other types of fonts. Uh, and now what is in italics um, was the marginal notes, which is, you know, the work of the six companies that we've talked about uh, up until now. So that's what the marginal notes those guys put in. They were actually in italics. Now, just as a bit of a comparison while we're on the topic of types of fonts, uh, 
The Great Bible and the Bishop's Bible were printed in the Gothic black letter type, same as this first version of the King James Bible, and the Geneva was printed in the more readable Roman type. Now for some further points of interest, the 1611 edition and my 400th anniversary copy, um, in them the printer included an almanac for 1603 to 1641, a guide on how to find Easter forever, which is quite handy, um, the tables and calends for expressing the order of psalms to be said at morning and evening prayers, and a table for holy days, and these to be observed and none other. And finally in this part, a table of contents. The only significant way my copy and an original differ besides the value on eBay is that for readability, the modern printer chose to print my copy in Roman type as opposed to the black letter type of the original. As I said earlier, if you can get one, grab one. They're a nice little item. And like the original, the New Testament has a special title page all to itself, kind of like the frontispiece of the Old Testament, the beginning of the... um the Bible itself. It is a woodcut which has the tetragrammaton at the top. Uh, it also has the dove. It has the Lamb of God symbol and it has Matthew and Mark sitting there. On the left are the tents of the tribes of Israel and on the right are the twelve apostles. Below all of this, so that's on the bottom of the center text, are Luke and John and a slain lamb. At the very bottom is a tablet inscribed Cum Privilegio which stands for the expression of the monopoly of Oxford, Cambridge and the royal printers to publish the Bible. The centre text reads, The New Testament of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, newly translated out of the original Greek and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's Special Commandment, imprinted in London by Robert Barker, printed to the King's Most Excellent Majesty, Anno Domini, 1611, Cum Privilegio. Now, while I'm here, I'll let you know that um, some of Barker's original copies included a map of Canaan and 18 leaves of the genealogies of the Holy Scriptures, which the binder could insert where he wanted to. Um, these were the work of one John Speed, who in October 1610 had obtained the king's privilege to insert his decoratively printed genealogies into every Bible edition. Um, and some of these also began with an engraving of the royal arms. All right, anyway, what we will do in um, upcoming episodes, we will go further uh, into these things, like into the variations, errors, intentional and otherwise, and things like this. So this episode has set us up for some very interesting topics in the future. Um, also... I'm planning something different in the next episode. I'm going to move away from uh, the Bible itself again. I've done this before just for one more episode, so be sure to check back for that in the future. Also, um, due to my health and other things that are going on in my life, I probably will be only um, attempting to at least do one episode per month from now on. I won't be able to do two a month like I have in the past. And um, But anyway, um, a number of you have written to me and told me that you're binge listening to this anyway. So really, it makes no difference to people who are doing that, whether you get, um, you know, 20 episodes or whatever at one time and listen to them or and then a couple of months later, you might grab another couple or however you like to do it. The one thing I do suggest is that you right click and save 
right-click download and save to your computer every episode. Then you can put on a hard drive or on a, you know, a um, external drive, and then you keep them forever. Um, because, you know, I certainly won't have these up on the internet for forever in our day, that's for certain. Alrighty, well, that's it for this episode. You have been listening to a History of the King James Bible podcast with your host, GK. Until next time, God bless. And hooroo. 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 Hooroo.